All right. Uh, so I am very pleased to announce uh, okay. our, our interview with uh, Dr. Eric Green. He is uh, the director of the National Human, Human Genome Research Institute. He's been uh, at that position since 2009. Uh, previously, he was the National Human Genome Research Institute scientific director, as well as uh, he's also worked as the chief of genome technology uh, branch. And he's also been the director of the National Institutes of Health Intramural Sequencing Center. So, uh, Dr. Green, I just want to welcome you to Grox. Uh, and so, Happy to be uh, with you. Thank you. Uh, so the topic to, of today uh, is uh, either personalized or precision medicine, depending on your particular uh, choice of nomenclature. Do you, have a, do you have a preferred way of referring to it? Well, you know, it's actually funny. I'm a genomics researcher. I've worked in the field of genomics actually since the beginning of the field when it actually got named um, in 1987 or so. Um, and... Um, the phrase I tend to use, which is even more sort of um, focused around our genome, our DNA, is uh, genomic medicine. Um, but genomic medicine really just refers to trying to tailor medical care for individuals based on their own unique uh, genomic makeup. I think if you go a little broader than that, there's ways of thinking about how to personalize or individualize medicine based on a number of things that make each of us unique. One component of that is our genomic makeup, but also other components of that include our own lifestyle, our own environmental um, exposures, our diet, and other things. And so I think when you hear the phrase personalized medicine, individualized medicine, or precision medicine, I think it's a larger overarching view of how to practice medicine based on more precise individual personal information of which a subset of that is genomic information. Recently, there was a lot of press from President Obama's uh, inclusion of, a, of an initiative to fund uh, personalized medicine in the State of the Union to the tune of uh, $215 million. Uh, how, how do you think that that's going to affect uh, research and, and kind of the oncoming field? Well, we're very excited about President Obama's announcement. Um, what uh, you may not fully appreciate is that uh, the president actually reached out to a number of us at the National Institutes of Health um, back last summer, long before his announcement, um, expressing his interest in perhaps having an initiative in this broad area of personalized medicine um, and, and what ultimately he decided to call precision medicine. So what I would say is by having the President of the United States announce a new national initiative using the phraseology of precision medicine um, is obviously given um, a lot of momentum, not only to the use of that phrase, which I will tend to use a lot now myself, precision medicine, but also a lot of momentum about this broader um, new view that not only is genomic information um, and its ability to be used for medicine sort of come to the fore, but there are other technologies and other information that have also now, in very recent years, um, clearly got, sort of gotten a lot of momentum that are going to allow us to even approach a precision medicine paradigm um, much more aggressively, especially if we can launch a research program now to really investigate this and think about how to deploy it on a larger scale. And that's really the nature of the Precision Medicine Initiative is major research efforts um, in ways uh, and, and style and substance that hasn't been done up till now. 
Yeah, uh, one of the things that I was reading about, um, and I think it's, it's part of this initiative, is the trying to get a one, uh, one million uh, volunteer cohort that would allow themselves to be studied in terms of both their uh, some of their genomic information, but also their environmental and lifestyle exposures to really get a much better sense of, of how all of these things in, intertwine. And I think that I, I thought that was really exciting because if it, if it can be done, while it will be a massive amount of information to process, I really think it gives you the kind of power to, to take a look at how things, you know, to, to really have a strong cohort. So, Adam, the way you asked that question, I think, was really important because you pointed out um, uh, the word power in there. And what you meant by that was statistical power, of course. Yeah, the other word I would use is scale. And, and, and the reason why the idea behind um, putting together a U.S. national cohort of at least a million, and maybe it'll even be bigger than a million, really became sort of a centerpiece for this precision medicine initiative is the recognition that human disease and clinical medicine, these are really complicated areas. And the only way that we're going to really untangle the complexities, especially of more common diseases that are out there in the population, is going to be through studies that give us scale, uh, tens of thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of individuals. Um, that will allow us to really tease out subtle contributions to disease. Some of it, these are genomic contributions. Some of these are going to be lifestyle contributions. Some of these are going to be environmental diet contributions. And to do this, we need to do this large. We need to do this rigorous. And we need to do this um, in, a, in a fashion that really allows us to follow people for a long time and study them in various ways. Now, you mentioned all the elements that are coming together um, within this, although the one element that you didn't mention but is really important is that we'll also have access to the electronic medical records of all these individuals. And, in fact, that will be a key part of this cohort. So not only are we going to get genomic information on them, not only are we going to get lifestyle and diet, environmental exposure, we're also going to get all their medical records and uh, that will be electronically accessed. All of that data together will provide powerful powerful substrate for analyzing to really learn very subtle aspects about disease, but also teach us a lot about how people respond to medications and, um, and what um, various medical interventions are effective and which ones are not. So uh, one of the things that for me as a pathology resident uh, that I, I really find interesting about genomic medicine and why this is uh, has suddenly kind of come into the forefront is that I feel like this is something that we had that it's actually already started to integrate itself within our healthcare. And I'm thinking specifically of things like the BRCA mutation. A lot of people get screened for to uh, manage the risk of breast or ovarian cancer. We also uh, screen people for gen genetic mutations for colon cancer, uh, and it's also helped us uh, develop drugs such as imatinib, uh, also known as Gleevec, which is uh, able to treat cancers with certain translocations. And do you, do you feel like there's other areas in which sort of genomic medicine has already managed to integrate itself into our current healthcare? Well, the examples you give are great ones, and um, there's no question that some of the low-hanging fruit in genomic medicine or precision medicine is going to be in, in cancer. And, in fact, I should point out that the President's Precision Medicine Initiative has as the early study to really implement 
precision medicine um, studies of cancer genomics so and cancer care. So that's there's no question cancer is at the front edge of precision medicine implementation. Um, the examples you give are all real ones. I predict there'll be many more in the cancer arena that will develop in the next, you know, five years, for example. Um, but other examples are starting to be seen um, as well that are real and are here and are now. Um, uh, pharmacogenomics is one that immediately comes to mind. Um, big, long word, but as you know and can appreciate, um, it's uh, pharmacology and genomics put together. And the basis for that is the idea that we all respond differently to medications. In fact, for some medications, some people respond poorly and or they have an adverse drug response. And we are learning increasingly that there are genomic differences that um, basically dictate whether you're going to be a good responder or a bad responder. And increasingly, there's more and more medications for which it is recommended you get genomic information about the individual before you make a decision about what medication to give them or whether that's a good medication for them. Um, we are at early days of implementing pharmacogenomics, and uh, there's a few success stories, and there's a few stories that are, we're still trying to figure out exactly how best, if at all, to use genomic information. But again, I think over the next five years, that number will grow, you know, considerably. And as a result of that, and I think this uh, U.S. national cohort will play a major role in demonstrating and refining approaches for pharmacogenomics. Yeah, I remember uh, when the – this was on a previous episode with uh, my co-host, uh, Samantha. We were discussing uh, the – the pharmacogenomics, because it's something that she's interested in, uh, and the, the recommendations for warfarin or Coumadin, the blood thinner, and how that, um, at least kind of initially, uh, it seemed like the pharmacogenomic recommendations didn't work as well as sort of the, the kind of the classic way, of, the kind of trial and error of, oh, you know, we start someone at this level and then we adjust it this way. But I made the point that I said, you know, these some of these other methods have had years and years and, you know, all kinds of patients, and so there's really been a lot of power behind to, to, to kind of make tweaks. And so that was, that was probably, at least in my opinion, one of the reasons why, why it wasn't necessarily uh, performing as well. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the warfarin story, which I think we still don't know the final answer on, um, these stories I think are going to play out multiple, multiple times. But just imagine the, what the world might look like five years from now. Because five years from now, what happens if we had a million people enrolled in a cohort and especially for something commonly used like warfarin, if you had a immediate access to lots of data about which individuals across those million have had a given medication, you'll have genomic information about them, and you'll see whether they responded well or not. Um, instead of having to go and start a study, you might have all the data you need for investigating certain questions about the role that genomics plays in drug response for a whole new suite of medications we haven't even studied yet. And so, again, I think this is a, a key rationale for this U.S. national cohort is that will enable very robust, rigorous, statistically powerful studies to be done on many, many different medications. Yeah, I, I think it's that because instead of having to enroll people for each individual thing, you can say, hey, now I've got this idea and I want to examine it. And instead of having to try to figure out a way to create your own study from scratch, you'll have the information that you need. Exactly. And, and as you said, you'll have the power in many of these cases. You'll have the scale because we're doing this not in a small way. We're being bold and audacious, as we should do in the United States. And we're going to say we're going to do at least a million and maybe more people and have them enrolled. 
So I've been researching some sort of some of the news on uh, personalized medicine and some of the opinions, and I came across this article that now this is admittedly from 2010, so it's a little bit in the past, uh, called Why Personalized Medicine is Bunk. And I felt like when I was reading through it that, uh, at least for me, I was like, I don't think that this person necessarily understands how how personalized medicine and how you know how all these things would really be be used. And do you feel like that there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, about the the field and and kind of how how we're going to integrate all this information together? Oh, certainly. And actually, the I think the misconceptions come in two forms. I mean, one one form of misconception is um, um, is, is people being unrealistic and how fast all these things are going to happen. Now, you know, it is possible that that is a little bit our fault because I think in the exuberance um, associated with uh, completing the Human Genome Project um, some, you know, 12, 13 years ago, you know, it was very exciting. It was, uh, you know, we were so successful in sequencing the human genome and finishing the goals of the Human Genome Project that we sort of, in our excitement, said, wow, this is just going to change everything and we're going to have medical, you know, advances, et cetera, et cetera. And I think some people interpreted that exuberance for meaning that we were going to change the face of medicine in two, three, four years, when in reality we knew it was going to take decades. It always does take decades to go from basic discoveries to actual changes in medical practice. But, but nonetheless, I think we get criticized for not delivering quick enough. But I think the other form of misconception that occasionally you'll have is when you hear the phrase personalized medicine, some people interpret that as tailoring um, medication development or tailoring uh, a very unique medical approach for each and every person. And, of course, that's not realistic. We're not going to find an individual and uniquely design a drug for them. We're just going to be more precise in matching the individual and the treatments they need to the repertoire of options that one has in terms of treatments, whether it be drug treatments or other treatments. So occasionally we'll get criticized by people who are not exactly representing what personalized or precision medicine really is all about. Yeah, so um, uh, I think another thing that at least I was uh, that I saw that uh, surprised me so from this article uh, was this concept. So the one of those first points uh, is that no test is 100% accurate. And he was saying, you know, let's say you do a full scan of the human of your unique genetic code. Uh, even if you've got a very small error rate, that you're going to get all of these false positives, and so that you know, he said, let's let's imagine that you're getting, uh, you know, you get a thousand false positives, and then you're trying to make medication, you're trying to make health decisions based on this information that um, that you don't know if it's, you know, if it's actually correct. So he's like, imagine you could be getting treated for diseases that you don't even have, and. Uh, Kind of tell me your thoughts about that. Uh, that seems a little naive. So, um, yes, there is uh, error rate associated with sequencing um, uh, the genome, but uh, when you're going to make a clinical decision, if you, we have ways of measuring those errors, we have ways of monitoring for them, and then we have ways of validating the results. And so uh, you and I are both pathologists, and we know very well um, how to run clinical assays so that the error rate is exceedingly small, and you have ways to put checks and balances in so that bad clinical decisions are not made based on bad data. Um, and so certainly we need to make sure that when we do large-scale 
Genome sequencing is part of clinical care. We have incredibly robust standards, approaches, validation methods so that it is safely um, um, uh, deduced what the sequence is, especially when you're going to make a medical decision on that. But it is naive to think that we're not thinking about these things, and it's naive to think that we don't have decades of experience um, designing um, clinical tests to make sure that uh, clinical decisions are based uh, based on accurate uh, tests. Yeah, I feel like uh, one of the things that people don't understand is that it's not like you would be diagnosed based on one single test, one run through, and that that would you know never be verified again via another test. And I think um, another area that that people may not understand is is that I think it's unlikely that we would have major major decisions based solely on the genetic data. I mean, I think I think there would be a lot of things that would go into it. I mean, I don't I don't think, for example, you would get one scan of someone's you know, genes and say, well, you're at risk for this, so we're just going to start doing this preemptively. I think you I, you have to integrate in a lot of other information about the person. And just it, it, just because you're taking a look at someone's genome doesn't mean that you throw everything out else that, you know, from medicine out the window. That's right. And although it depends on what you're asking. And for some, some um, uh, diseases, we know precisely based on this genomic change that you're going to get this disease. Um, you know, sickle cell anemia comes to mind as one example. Um, there are other examples, cystic fibrosis, especially rare diseases. There certainly are some examples we know precisely pharmacogenomic-wise. If you have this spelling of this gene, this is not a drug for you. Mm-hmm. But, but then there's a whole host of other things, especially more common diseases, where sequence differences are going to basically just give you a little more or a little less risk for a disease, and you're not going to act clinically on that little tidbit of information. You're going to look at a constellation of data, of which that will only be one of many pieces of information. Yeah. Um, now, another thing that this uh, this article pointed out was kind of a shortcoming of personalized medicine is that uh, the they said an ugly secret that the genetic testing industry doesn't want you to know is we have virtually no information about the relevance of most genetic mutations. And now, while I sort of agree that there's there's a lot that we don't understand about how genetic mutations affect diseases, I think in many ways the person's actually making the, the point that I would want to make in that this information could help us understand better these different diseases. And I know in your, your 2011 uh paper, you mentioned uh, how it's really helped inform our understanding of, for example, Crohn's disease, which I think is, and so can you, can you tell me a little bit about your, your perspective on that? Well, it's what I, I mentioned earlier in that if we're being criticized that personalized medicine is not going to deliver because we don't understand how the human genome completely works, let alone when there are typographical changes in it, how it will alter how it works is a reflection of that. that's right, because we're so early into understanding all of this. So that's, again, managing expectations about timing. You know, we, we went, uh, you know, many, 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 many years without having our blueprint laid out before us. And now we've had our blueprint laid out before us for a mere 12 or 13 years. You know, it may take decades and decades to fully understand how the human genome works and how sequence differences in it influence health and disease. This is early, early days. So it is absolutely true that we are at the very early stages of understanding all the subtle 
ways that the human genome functions, and we are at very early days of understanding how sequence differences among our different patients affect um, their health and well-being. Um, but the fact of the matter is that's why we are in the middle of doing major research projects to understand these things, and this will be a major component of the Precision Medicine Initiative, is to start to really tie all these pieces together. But you're absolutely right. Um, the fact is that we are just sort of at the the earliest stage of even understanding this. Can you ma imagine how much better it's going to be 5, 10, 20 years from now when when our amount of knowledge about functional parts of the human genome and consequences for making changes or having changes in them influence disease and drug response and so forth, it's going to, it's going to be spectacular. Uh, one of the things uh, that I also think it's really interesting about uh, this about sort of genomic medicine or precision medicine is how it could influence the uh, development of treatment of drugs. And two different things that I've seen come up is uh, kind of the the better design of clinical trials in terms of whether or not somebody should be included or not. If you can if you can identify people that are more likely to have a response, you can include them in a cohort group and 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 um, help better design clinical trials. Because I feel like that's one of the major difficulties for really getting any new treatment or medication onto market is just the difficulty of getting through trials and making sure that uh, you're able to get everything approved, but also just in the process of drug development. No, but you're absolutely right on both counts. I think one day we'll look back on the way we did clinical trials and said, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe that we did a clinical trial without having genomic information on each and every patient. It would sort of be like, oh, I can't believe that when we did a clinical trial, we didn't know if it was a male or a female. We didn't know how tall they were. We didn't know their blood pressure. We didn't know their weight. You know, this fundamental information you'd want to have, I think, in the context of 2015, we're going to say any person in a clinical trial, we should have genomic information about them. Again, we will have this in the U.S. national cohort as part of the Precision Medicine Initiative. It's just going to be basic information about individuals who are involved in clinical research. In terms of drug development, again, you're absolutely right, is that the more knowledge we get about the human genome, how it functions, and how changes in it alter our physiology and therefore alter our risk for disease, Every one of those things, not only does it give potential information about treating patients, it teaches us about pathways and how pathways can be perturbed and how that leads to disease. And that gives immediate clues about how to tweak those pathways in a fashion that might yield to new treatments. And one of the examples, there's many examples to give of surprises, um, is um, one that clearly illustrates, you know, how, how ignorant you and I are, even though we both went to medical school. The fact of the matter is there's so much about disease that we just don't know that we continually have big surprises. And the example is uh, one of many is age-related macular degeneration, a very common disorder um, uh, of, of, of human vision that can be quite uh, devastating to patients. And through some very sophisticated um, uh, genomic studies that were done, it turned out they figured out what was one of the genes that was involved in this very complicated disorder, and it turned out to be a, disease, a, a gene that was critically important in part of the immune system. And nobody had any idea that age-related macular degeneration had an immune component. And as soon as they figured out which pathway of the immune system was involved in this disorder, it immediately gave rise to new insights about drugs that might be available or might be developed that could potentially counteract uh, the genomic 
change that led to a change in that particular immunological pathway. And there are now clinical trials ongoing to try to fight this disorder uh, that purely came about because of the surprise that was learned by doing genomic studies um, that without those insights, without that knowledge of that pathway being involved, nobody would have ever thought of those drugs as being a potential ones to use to, for treating that disease. Uh, one of the things that I think you've, you've uh, mentioned in, in the Nature article and that I've seen elsewhere and I think is an application that maybe some people don't think of when they think of genomic medicine is uh, studying of the microbiome, uh, sort of the, the populations of bacteria and other microorganisms that live in the body and the role that they can potentially play on health. Right, and uh, absolutely, it, this is an exciting area that because, um, and most people don't realize that, you know, the human body is uh, mostly not human cells. Uh, the human body is an ecosystem that is by far mostly microbial cells. Um, uh, with, you know, we're just uh, many, many, many um, uh, bacteria, viruses, yeast, various other things um, that live on us and in us. Um, and outnumber us. Um, but the fact is we're actually a, most of the time a healthy ecosystem. Uh, we rely on those microbes to help us break down food and do various things. And without those microbes, we actually would be in trouble. And so the problem, though, is that we don't really have a very good inventory of those microbes. And, in fact, the great, great, great majority of them we can't even isolate and grow in a laboratory. So we're blind to them. But these powerful new methods that have been developed over the past decade for sequencing DNA allow us to, to basically blindly sequence the DNA of, of microbes that are in us and on us, almost as a population, as a community. And through very sophisticated computer methods, we can do inventories now and figure out all the little critters that are living in our little ecosystems. And the collective community of these microbes is called the microbiome. This is a very rapidly emerging field of scientific discovery. We are learning all sorts of things about the role that the microbiome plays in health, but also in disease. And um, there's many diseases we now know. There are major shifts in the, the, the population of these microbes. And some of these shifts are a consequence of disease, but some of these shifts are also the cause of disease. And this just opened up new opportunities that are really quite exciting. I should also point out one other thing. The way I frame this is that, you know, we always talk about that disease is often a combination of your genetics or your genomics and also your environmental exposure. The microbiome could be viewed as your most intimate environmental exposure. It's really, it's not you, it's the thing that's part of your ecosystem, but it's the environment. It just happens that the way we study the microbiome is that we use tools of genomics. We sequence the DNA of those microbes, and that allows us to um, do an inventory. But I see the microbiome not as sort of the genomic part of human, but really the environmental component of, of the human body. Um, we just happen to use genomic tools to study them. I think it's interesting to think about how uh, genomic tools can, can uh, help kind of give us an idea of some of the environmental exposure. I was recently uh, reading uh, an article about uh, some researchers that discovered how uh, environmental exposure was potentially affecting uh, the epigenetic uh, expression within ants and actually had it so they could understand the link between environment, epigenetics, and just the overall size of the ants. Do you, do you think that um, well, do you think that environmental exposure has also has genetic consequences? I mean, aside from obvious, just like mutations. 
Yeah, well, the short answer is, of course, absolutely. And we need to understand how mechanistically the environment really has an influence on our health and disease. And one of the ways is going to clearly be in this language of epigenomics, which for those who aren't familiar with this, you know, besides the letters of our genome, our DNA, the G's, A's, T's, and C's, we the stretches of DNA also get modified by chemical groups and, and get associated with different marks as they are, and that's called epigenomics. It's, it's beyond our primary letter sequence. It's sort of other decorations on our DNA. And one of the ways the environment can influence our DNA is by having the environment basically alter the epigenomic marks that get put down in our DNA. We are learning that epigenomics plays a huge role in cancer, we're learning that epigenomics plays a huge role in many disease processes. It's a whole other language that we are so early on in understanding, but, you know, will be a sort of a key part of the next 10 and 20 years of genomics research. But, no, absolutely, it's a, and it really is going to be one of these important um, ways that uh, the world around us influences uh, our genome and influences our physiology. I, I think that's uh, that's a really uh, great summary of, of of just kind of how this interplay could happen. And I think I think it's interesting to again kind of think about how we could use genetic tools to look at some of these other you know non non genetic uh, issues that we you know that we commonly think of. One of the the questions I I wanted to ask you about is about uh, what do you see as some of the difficulties that uh, that uh, kind of this field of precision medicine will face. I'm thinking, uh, for, for example, technologically, I feel like we've made a lot of advances, but is there more that we that we really need to be able to get to? Yeah, no, I, there's huge challenges. And, uh, you know, again, I tend to be very enthusiastic and excited about all the the, the remarkable things that have happened and, and I predict to happen, but at the same time, I don't want to give the illusion that all, any of this is simple or that it's all going to happen overnight. There's some significant challenges. And what's What's really happened in the past 10 years in particular is that we've shifted ourselves from um, basically being uh, sort of data poor, but we could pretty much understand most of what we were able to generate data about. But with new technologies now, we can just, especially around DNA sequencing, we could just generate so much data that we can't even interpret it quick enough. And so we're really at this awkward stage that we can take a patient in the clinic and we can sequence their genome. But the huge challenge is understanding what even a small fraction of the three to five million spelling differences that each of us has in our genomes, what it means. And um, we are so early days in that. That is a huge challenge. And then knowing, even if we know what it means, you know, what it might mean for their biology, we don't necessarily know what it means for their clinical management. And so there's just so much to be learned and operationalizing this, and it really is the cutting edge of what we do here at the institute that I direct, the National Human Genome Research Institute. It's figuring out how are we going to actually operationalize the use of genomic information, and that tends to be what we emphasize, for clinical care. And as part of the Precision Medicine Initiative, there'll be other kinds of information that will also be similarly tested and studied um, to figure out the best way to deliver precise medical care for individuals. Um, I also have a question for you. So what do you think about uh, some of the ethical challenges that, that, are, that are, I think, are coming up? Uh, for example, I mean, there's, uh, there's always concerns about privacy, although I think that really applies to 
pretty much anyone at the time now that we have electronic medical records. But also feeding into, you know, people, whether or not they want to know, how much information do they actually want to know? These are great questions, and, and actually they represent some ongoing research studies that really represent the cutting edge of some of the ethical, legal, and social implications research that we support at our institute. And you hit it right on the head. Just because you can know doesn't mean you want to know. Um, we are clearly at the ability now to sequence somebody's genome um, and learn about things uh, that they are at greater risk for, not absolute risk, just greater risk in many cases for diseases that we can't do anything about, like Alzheimer's disease um, or Huntington's disease. And um, it is not always the case that people want to know that information, and it really is up to individual choice. And we need to, you know, really be careful and study and make sure we understand the right frameworks for presenting to patients um, what circumstances they want to have information and what circumstances should we not give them that information because they don't want to know. So there are a whole host of issues, in there, and it gets pretty complicated because your genome is about you, but from your genome, um, we can infer things about your relatives, um, siblings, parents, or children, and, uh, and what are the implications of us learning a little bit about them indirectly by knowing some things about you. So, um, you know, it's, it brings up some pretty um, vexing things we need to think carefully about. It's one of these examples where powerful technologies bring great opportunities, but they also bring great responsibilities. And um, considering these things, studying them, and being very mindful is, is really a key component of what we do. Do you ever worry about um, also the ethics of, for example, if this information gets out and people be uh, being discriminated against either by insurance companies or by employers by saying, well, you know, if you're likely to, to die of cancer, we don't, you know, we're going to jack up your insurance rates? Well, in the United States, we're protected against much of that because the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, something called GINA, um, which in, by and large seems to be protecting people pretty well from, from much of that, although it's not perfect and we could imagine having stronger laws. Um, this is one of many things that I think will also continue to be looked at um, in the Precision Medicine Initiative. We need to be – and it's not just about genomic information. It's about, as you pointed out, it's also about medical information. And um, uh, as more and more information is collected electronically, um, we should not allow any of that information to be used as a means to discriminate against individuals. And we probably need stronger protections and stronger laws. And I think we as a society should demand that. Um, and But you're absolutely right. We have to be mindful of it. These are such two-edged swords that, you know, one edge of that sword is just so remarkable, so powerful, and it could bring such benefit to humanity. But if we're not careful, that other edge of the sword could be used for destructive purposes, and we can't let that happen. Uh, finally, I'd like to touch on some of the, I guess, the financial difficulties and, and really getting uh, precision medicine forward. I think both in terms of the, uh, in terms of funding and also in terms of uh, then adopting it on a, on a clinical uh, level. I know one of the issues that we often have um, in hospitals is just trying to get uh, insurance reimbursement for different tests. I mean, these tests are still costly, and sometimes I know insurance companies really balk at paying for an expensive test that they might say, well, you know, all you're going to do is just treat the person anyways. No, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, and we're interacting a lot here at our institute with payers, you know, health care providers and payers. Um, people who are involved in making decisions about reimbursements. There's a lot of education that's going to be needed. Um, 
we need to but and this has been as you well know has been the case for other uh, medical advances as well is that there's there's always been this lag between the medical advance and between the time uh, that you actually get enough momentum to get in, the insurance reimbursements appropriately calibrated so there's there's no question we need to be doing this and needs to be part of um, our research in that we need to develop the evidence base to demonstrate uh, efficacy, medical efficacy, improvement, and the effectiveness of healthcare in order to make sure that these things are reimbursed. We will not be successful if the only people that can take advantage of precision medicine are those uh, people who are economically fortunate enough to pay for it themselves and, 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 and leaving behind individuals who don't have the means to pay for it not having access to these new technologies. That would be tragic. We can't allow that to happen. Um, all right, so I'm, I, we've, uh, we've been talking for a long time, and I think one of the, I mean, one of the most exciting things that we've uh, been discussing has been this large cohort, and I wanted to try to get an under, uh, what, what are your hopes for what the kind of information we'll get out of this uh, large cohort? What, 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 would you, what would you like to say that your goals are for precision medicine in the next 10 and 20 years? Uh, you know, I guess what I would say is that I would like to see us in a circumstance whereby we can have investigators 10 years from now, you know, think of an idea about what roles of, of either genomic differences or lifestyle or environmental exposure and so forth um, might be, um, develop a hypothesis and be able to jump into this data resource um, and be able to begin immediately to sort of uh, refine their hypothesis and maybe able to answer additional questions. And doing this very inexpensively because it's a matter of just analyzing the data and then maybe having the infrastructure set up so that they could then design a study where they would contact 10,000 of those people or 5,000 of those people and, and, and contact them and have them participate in additional follow-up studies that are very sophisticated um, that would allow us to gain remarkable insights about a, a new treatment or about a specific disease or about a certain new medication and so forth. And I just want that, that, that the barrier to being able to do these very sophisticated studies to be very low because, and, and, and the power of their studies to be very high because they would start off with a million people's worth of data and hone in on the 10,000 or the 5,000 or the 1,000 that would give them the, the, the killer bit of information that would allow remarkable insights about something that would be clinically useful. And, you know, I think this is all very doable, and, um, and it would really allow us to investigate some complexities of disease in ways that we previously were unimaginable because we just didn't have that kind of information all amassed in one place, uh, not to mention the numbers of people necessary to get enough statistical power. I, I mean, I think I think this is what's really exciting about the the idea of this cohort is that not only could precision research or precision medicine help to kind of really change the way that we approach clinical medicine, but it sounds like you feel like it has a real a way for completely changing the the way that we look at doing medical research. Absolutely, I mean, and and a cohort properly designed really will provide a vehicle for doing a full spectrum of research and. There'll be, I predict, just as many discoveries that would come out of some of these studies with such a cohort that would send somebody immediately to the bedside of a patient to do something different 
as, as, as equal to the number of situations that will send somebody back to the research bench to do a very basic science experiment from insights that they gained from looking at data in the cohort. So it really has a lot of feedback loops. It's not all going from, from basic science to clinical applications. I think along the way, some of these things go backwards and, and, and develop new hypotheses that require individuals to go back to the laboratory to do an additional study. Um, okay, well, that's all of the questions that I have for you. Is there anything that you would like to add or anything that we felt like you felt like we haven't touched on? Well, you know, as a pathologist, since we're both pathologists, I thought the one thing we didn't talk about, which I think is an area to really watch, because I think there's a lot of excitement brewing in this area, um, is, is, is related to um, cell-free DNA, DNA floating around in our bloodstream. Um, and let me just remind everybody that uh, these new methods for sequencing DNA are so exquisitely sensitive that they allow detection of minute amounts of DNA that might be diluted way out. And, and where that's finding clinical application, and in some cases real today diagnostic applications, I think by five years from now, many other uh, diagnostic applications, is by a simple blood draw of a person being able to detect DNA floating around um, in the bloodstream of that individual. Now, what are the contexts by which uh, that might be clinically useful? Well, what's here and now um, is with pregnant women. So it turns out that pregnant women, even at very early stage of pregnancy, um, you can access and sequence the DNA of the, of the fetus by simply doing a simple blood draw of a pregnant woman. And you can learn all sorts of things that you want to do in terms of prenatal testing. Now, previously, that, that would require something like an amniocentesis or more invasive, a thing called a chorionic villus sampling to get to the fetal DNA. Now you could do it by a simple blood draw of the mom with no risk uh, that otherwise would be associated with these other two procedures. So that's one application. Another application, which is getting quite exciting, is, um, and they, they refer to this as a liquid biopsy. You take an individual has cancer or maybe a person you don't know has cancer, um, and there you could sequence DNA floating around in their bloodstream and find evidence of a cancer somewhere in the body, that's, and that tumor is shedding um, cancer-like DNA, and we know some things to look for. And I believe that we may find ourselves in the next five years of monitoring either for a cancer that we didn't know the patient had, or for monitoring long-term a known cancer patient looking for recurrence of a tumor by simply taking blood draws from that individual. That's a second application. A third application where there's some early data on relates to organ transplantation. So someone gets a transplanted heart. Um, one way we might find ourselves monitoring that person long-term is by doing blood draws from that person and looking for higher amounts of DNA uh, not from the individual, but from the transplanted organ. Um, and if you find a higher level, it might be because you're starting to reject that heart and there's a lot of tissue turnover in that transplanted heart and that's shedding DNA. Now, these things are all at different stages of maturation, but there is early data to suggest that these kinds of clinical applications that allow you to basically get knowledge about an unborn baby or about a cancer or about a transplanted organ might be possible through a simple blood draw. And, you know, I just think some of that stuff's way cool. And, uh, and, and I just think 10 years ago this was unimaginable, and now we're sitting here, and in some cases it seems incredibly feasible. 
it's uh, I, I guess that helps explain why so many of my colleagues I feel like are moving into taking uh, taking a year of fellowship to study molecular genetics because when you think about it, so much so much of what you were just discussing has been you know so classically monitored using just simple uh, tissue slides and tissue samples where you'd have a pathologist have to take a look and the idea that you could uh, avoid having to do all these biopsies. Correct. And, and, yeah, and bio as you know, biopsies are invasive and blood draws are not. And so the idea of not having to do tissue biopsies is, uh, you know, very, very powerful. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you again for uh, talking with me today. Um, sure. And uh, I think that's, that's all for today. Great. Nice talking to you, Adam. All right. Thank All you. Right. Uh